0: everybody to sippin and shipping i'm your host brian weinstein we'll be kicking it here every other friday quenching your thirst for an insider's take to enhance your customer experience so grab your drink of choice kick back it's sippin and shipping time all right welcome everybody to another episode of sippin and shipping i am your host brian weinstein and with me in support because i am on the injured reserve caitlin Postal.
1: That's right, Brian. Lucky for you. We came to terms. I'm not striking. I'm sitting in an air-conditioned office and happy to be here to support. What's going on? Thank How are you, you feeling?
0: I am feeling I'm feeling okay. I'm feeling okay. All things considered, uh, my, my, my little weekend mishap aside, all in good shape. Good. All right. And then this week, I think, Caitlin, this is our first repeat guest, right?
1: It is. And a very special repeat guest at that.
0: Yes, our very own Sean Skim Shady. <laughs> what's happening, Sean?
2: Hey, what's going on, guys? I didn't know I was your first repeat guest. Thanks for uh, for having me, and glad to have the, uh, the title, the honor there. Parcel no. is
1: just that sexy, Sean, and you know it.
0: It is. Oh, so sexy. So it sexy. Is. It just, <laughs> that's why people tune in. They tune in for that's sexy, right. and parcel is sexy.
2: For the parcel. Tune in for the yes. parcel. Exactly. It, 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 it's sexy, but, you know, not only is it sexy, it's really, really important, too.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah absolutely. So for those that don't know, I'll let Sean intro himself, but he is our guru of everything small parcel. He is what keeps our small parcel network running effectively for our customers. So Sean, why don't you give a little background for, for those of you that didn't tune in to your first episode?
2: Yeah. Thanks, Brian. Um, so, yeah, my name is Sean Kim. I'm the Vice President of e-commerce experience and global parcel strategy for um, Rider e-commerce by Whiplash. And uh, my role is really here to help our customers specifically with their customer experience when it comes to the delivery of packages, right? So, the small parcel component of it, as well as the return of those packages coming back to our network those are the, the tangible touch points with, you know, between our brands and their customers. And so as simple as it might sound, there's a significant amount of strategies to make that happen. My background, uh, I've been doing e for over 20 years, specifically with e-commerce companies like zappos.com, amazon.com and a slew of others uh, from kind of traditional e-commerce to various types of subscriptions e-commerce and so my focus has always been kind of just in this space right here of helping strategize on your customer experience with with delivery and so yeah i get the uh, the honor to work with our customers some incredible brands on how to help them with their strategies uh whether it be from like a marketing thing that they want to do or just overall brand experience so thanks again for having
0: me no no love having you on love the industry discussion you know, I think for us, let's just address it. It's funny to start thinking of peak on July 5th, right? But I, what, in your experience, is the best time? I mean, we typically start around now with most of our customers, right?
2: Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to, maybe I might be divulging a little bit too much and giving away a little bit of our, our secrets here. Uh, but, you know, anything for you guys. Um <laughs> give us the team. I like give how he queued that
1: up, right? Yeah. <laughs> build, build, build. Spill it, Sean.
2: Here we go. No, I mean so you know, one of the things that we are very, very cognizant about here at Rider E-Commerce is the ability for our customers to have their packages delivered in a timely manner at peak season, right? So that we're talking about the October, November, December specifically between Black Friday and Christmas. Like that's the the very crucial time. And in order for packages to get into the network, you need to make sure that there's enough capacity on the pickups. And so one of the things that we do is we work very, very early, almost six months in advance. Um, We've already started peak planning, but we work about six months in advance with the carriers. So we work with our customers on what their forecasts and plans are and then we work with the carriers on that to try to secure that capacity, you know, during that peak season. Because we want to ensure, you know, that that capacity is first come, first serve on the pickups, right? There's only a limited number of drivers and trailers that they have capacity for. And so, our little secret is that we work with the carriers very aggressively, work with our customers uh, very diligently, on trying to secure that capacity for come peak season.
0: And, Sean, just before we even start to address the gigantic elephant, brown elephant in the room, we won't <laughs> even go there yet. You know, 2020 was obviously COVID year, and things were, were super spiky for e-commerce. And then 2021, it seemed to be like the height of all things congestion in the, in the small parcel network. 2022 was a little bit better. Again, aside from what we're going to talk about in a few minutes with UPS, just in general, if that weren't a situation, what is sort of your projections for this coming peak season?
2: Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, we're we're seeing very aggressive numbers from our our customers already. I think everybody's very hopeful. Uh, I mean, let's just be honest, right? This year has not been the strongest year for ecom, mm-hmm. and I, I think to your point, Brian, you know, and and this is something that we had discussed internally was, we knew that so during the COVID period e was at all-time high, right? People were locked in their homes, couldn't do anything. Um, so e-com was, was was through the roof. And then if you think about consumer behavior, as we started coming out of this pandemic and we were let out on probation, we'll call it, stores started opening up little by little and started making it more convenient. We started to go out a little bit more and venture, a little bit more, you know, trying to do more of the brick-to-mortar shopping. Um, and I think 2023 is just really the, the time when... You know, very rarely now do you see any stores that require mass, uh, that require, you know, limited number of people inside stores. And so we're just seeing a huge influx of consumers going back, you know, back to brick and mortar.
0: Hey, hey, Um, Sean, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but just, just a question, though. Is it just a slowdown in growth? Is it really a pullback in the volume numbers? Or is it just a slowdown where everybody got used to from 20 to 22, this, you know, 20 plus percent growth, if not more. And now we're more on a normal level.
2: I think it's more along the lines of the, it's it's a rebalancing, mm-hmm. right? So it, it, there was a full swing to e-com when we were forced to. And now that brick and mortar is opening up, we're starting to see a rebalance, right? And you know that kind of feeds the trend of e-com companies. Now, when you have these digitally native brands, and a lot of them are now working directly with brick and mortar retailers, trying to get more into that, you know, that that arena to become, you know, really more omni-channel. I think omni-channel is definitely a strategy, but also we're seeing a lot more consumer spend in the retail, the brick-and-mortar retail side of things. But overall, I think, you know, consumer spending is down. Uh, You know, we could blame kind of economical factors and inflation and some of those things, but this it's still, uh, e-com is still very, very strong. And I do think that as, brick-and-mortar retail, and we can have a whole separate conversation on, you know, what the brick-and-mortar strategies, things that are happening in the brick-and-mortar side. But as consumers start to go back and they start to see, you know, like, oh, this is really great. Let me check what's online. Um, Not necessarily price comparisons, but also just inventory levels, right? So you might, example, you might go into, like, a Foot Locker. You might look at a pair of Nikes and say, like, oh, do you have this in size 10? And they might say, like, oh, we don't have it. We can get it from another store. That consumers is already walking out the door looking at Nike.com and saying, okay, boom, there it is. I'm going to place the order right now. And I think we're starting to see a lot of that sort of behavior coming on. And I think that's ultimately going to fuel kind of the, the next you know, wave of e-com growth.
1: Yeah, the diversification of channels is something that we've spoken about this year with guests. Um, I guess the digitally native rocket ship has kind of run out of COVID fuel. So we see that folks are going in ways that they never thought they would before. So how are you working? So speaking, getting back to peak planning. No one has a crystal ball. How are you working with the brands and more importantly, the carriers, right? When we always say operationally to our brands, we know that months out, these are going to be wrong. But as we creep closer to that date, we should tighten up those those projections. How are you working with both, finding that balance between brand and carrier to diversify or like work with the right people to make sure those packages are allocated for um, and going to be able to really get that customer experience that you're promising to our brands?
2: Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, I guess I'll let you in. Maybe it's a little bit of a secret and, you know, secret sauce, what we do, but maybe not, Um, you know, there is no crystal ball, you know, so what we generally, what we do is we, we ask our brands to shoot for the moon, um, you know, and, and what do you think, what do you need to do? What do you want to do as a business? Right. Because that question right there, is going to help drive the marketing efforts that are going to take place later this year. If they're like, we got to move all this inventory. And so that means they're going to be for lack of a better word. I don't know if it's desperate or if it's just more aggressive, aggressive, moving, aggressive, right? yeah. uh, aggressive on moving the inventory. They might have more sales and bigger deals and stuff like that, which ultimately leads to volume, right. And, and capacity needs. Um, so we, we ask brands to shoot for the moon. And then what we'll do is we work again, very closely with our brands, and we track it kind of week over week, month over month leading up to it. And then as every month goes by, we kind of look at the forecast again, readjust, and then try to fine tune that. There's no, it's not a perfect science, but we try to fine tune it. And ultimately what ends up happening is we work directly with the carriers and saying, okay, we may not need as much capacity you know, coming out of this location, so we may cut back. Or we might say, like, there's going to be a huge shift from ground to air during this time period. This is what we're seeing. So it's really just kind of to your point, Caitlin, it's just working you know, very closely with our brands and the carriers to ensure that we're not overcommitting with the carriers because that ultimately costs them money. And we don't want them to waste money. And we don't want to be selfish with capacity. We just, you know, we want to be very realistic. Um, and then... You know, obviously, working with our brands to ensure that uh, their forecasting is much closer on point based off of historical trends.
0: Yep, makes a lot of sense. And Sean, at this stage, for especially for Peak, and and I know this is going to vary, and, and but just for your for a typical parcel a customer, has Peak surcharges become a norm? Is that a guaranteed, or every year they're kind of making decisions?
2: The carriers are always going to say every year it's going to be TBD, but I think it's become the norm. All it takes is one carrier to say, like, we're going to charge peak surcharge and everybody else follows suit, right? And so it's it's really unfortunate because I feel like with year-over-year increases in in rates, should be covering whatever that capacity demand is. But ultimately, you know, I, I feel that the carriers are just kind of leveraging this to maybe cover some additional costs, but I think it's just, you know, feeding the margin
0: right yeah it's a slippery slope for a brand that has to budget that's right right that's right I mean,
2: the big challenge here is we, nobody really knows what the peak surcharge is going to be come this you know if there's going to be peak surcharge and how much it's going to be come this peak season because of the way that the carriers calculate one period to another period so like as a brand it's very difficult to budget like oh i should expect yeah, you know, dollars per package or $4 a package, $5 a package, whatever that might be. It's really hard for them to budget for that.
1: And when do those get rolled out typically?
2: Uh, usually the week of Black Friday.
1: Nice. Just in time.
2: Yeah, yeah just in time. Some carriers um, will start November 1st, but usually the week of Black Friday. And then, you know, they'll do... So the, when I was talking about two different period comparisons, they'll say like, okay, they'll take some week earlier in the year and they'll say, we're going to use that as a baseline. And come peak season, if your volume you know, exceeds like 100% or 150% or 200% of that previous period, then you're going to get assessed this peak surcharge. What carriers tend to do is they take like a week in June when e-com is at an all-time low and say that is your baseline. And then they take the week right before Black Friday and say this is your new baseline. And that's how they determine what they're gonna charge you for the peak surcharge. To me, it's a little bit, like I can understand just kind of a flat number for every package going through peak, but uh, no, it doesn't work like that. So it's very difficult for us to be able to uh, communicate to our customers what to budget for. Again, we we use historical data. And when customers ask us, we, unfortunately we had to say like, well, last year and previous years, it was this, so you might wanna start planning for that but it could be more.
0: Yeah, it's like I'm, I'm on a weight loss bet with Wallpuff right now. And I I I took my I weighed myself right after the biggest meal of the day. So this way, when I go and weigh in next time, I'm lighter. <laughs> so it's tricky. sort of... Right, exactly. <laughs> I'm like the parcel carriers. <laughs> so, and I'm asking this without really knowing the answers, but are the brands passing those peak surcharge costs along to the consumer? Historically, we haven't seen that. And I can understand why, right? For the brands, they don't want to
2: interrupt the the checkout flow right they want their customers to go through and select the goods that they want they want to be able to offer free shipping i think it's it's great that brands want to do that and for a consumer it's great to see you know free shipping even if it's like a certain minimum it's great to see that but now you go through the process and you're like oh by the way now there's this little peak surcharge you know we're going to give you free shipping but there's this other surcharge because it's peak season that could interrupt the flow to checkout. Now a consumer can say like, oh, I'm not sure I want to do that. I can order from somewhere else, potentially like Amazon or some other, com- you know, a company right. who's not going to charge me and then just abandon the cart. And so I think for brands, they're, they're kind of stuck between, you know, a rock and a hard place in this when it comes to peak surcharges.
0: Well, I guess you could build, you could probably build your parcel fees up a touch, throughout the year to, to kind of build a war chest to be able to support that. I mean, look, it's a, it's an absolute fall to the bottom margin erosion for a brand to have yeah. to absorb that. So somehow, some way, it only makes sense if the carriers are going to continue to provide it or charge it, that the brand somehow or another have to claim that back from the consumer. Otherwise, they're going to go through some margin erosion, which can impact them in other areas.
2: Yeah, 100%. I mean, hats off to uh, the marketing folks at all these companies because they have to deal with having all this understanding of what's going to come up this peak season, figuring out what discounts they're going to be able to offer, what sales they're going to have, and then balancing that with how do we continue to acquire new customers throughout the year leading up to peak season, right? Knowing that potentially there's a peak surcharge coming, the company needs to hit certain margins, they need to prepare for that erosion, whatever it might be, it's very challenging, you know, for folks in marketing. And yeah, so got to tip their tip the hat over uh, to those folks who are making it happen and growing.
0: All right. So just just shifting gears to, you know, if it was easy, everybody would do it. So we have all these great plans laid out. And then we have this potential UPS strike. I'm not sure when the final decisions are coming, how that's working out. I know this is a this is a union thing with UPS right now. Uh, you know, what are I, again forward-looking statements? And we don't we don't have any crystal balls. We don't know what's going on exactly. But what are you sort of hearing is going on in the market right now? Yeah, so maybe we'll start with with the facts, right? So there's a negotiation that takes
2: place between the international brother of Teamsters and UPS every five years. People should not be thinking, like, oh, my God, this is just, like, out of the blue. Every five years, there's there's an agreement. You know, once UPS and the Teamsters come to terms this year, come 2028, there's going to be another negotiation, All right? So, first things first, people need to understand that this is not some random thing where they're just saying, you know, the work conditions suck. We're not going to do this anymore. This is it's, it's contract renewal time. So, the current contract expires on August 1st. And there are a lot of terms that the teamsters would like UPS to meet. Essentially kind of the teamsters positions in some is you guys are killing it. You guys are making a significant amount of money. We're doing all the work and we have not so ideal work conditions and less, you know, we don't make as much. And so we want a bigger piece of that pie. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that that's, what's going on. There's a lot of things like air conditioning in the vehicles, which UPS has already agreed to. I think they're, they're spending a, $400 400 million dollars. Uh, they're investing into uh, retrofitting all the um, the trucks with with air conditioning. Obviously, completely agree with that. That's kind of where things are at. And there's just a lot of media buzz this year around this UPS strike. Is it concerning? Yes, absolutely. It's concerning. You know, they deliver, what is it, something over 20 million, maybe 24 million packages a day domestically.
0: And and Um, what is that as a percentage of the overall packages, would you guess? Probably about 6%. Six
2: is is kind of what we're, you know, what we're reading. It's significant. You know, it's, it's very, very significant. And so I will say, knowing now that the contract is set to expire on August 1st, the Teamsters has already agreed, I mean, why wouldn't they? uh that if they can't agree the terms they're going to go on strike uh if they don't have a signed agreement august 1st they're going to they're going to go on strike they're going to stop working uh go on strike that's going to be about 340,000, you know probably more than 340,000 positions that are just going to say we're done and they're going to pick it so huge impact yeah yeah kind of talking when we're talking about peak planning and how we operate the business we look at historicals will there be a strike my gut tells me, no, there won't. And if you just look at the historicals, so the last time there was actually a strike was 1997. And the lesson learned from that strike. So eventually it w- they went on strike for 15 days and eventually they came to an agreement. And that 15 days cost UPS 600, over $600 million in business for 15 days, right? So yeah, that's an it's an expensive lesson to, to learn. And so, and this is back in 1997. Now, you know, think about how much e-com was happening in 1997. This is when like early days of Amazon. And and now we look at like what's, what's going on with e-com. It's going to be significantly, you know, the dollar impact is going to be significantly higher. Um, But that was the last time when there was a strike. Uh, You know, there was a contract negotiation in 2002, 2008, 2013 and 2018 and did you guys know that i don't think no. anybody knew that no i did not yeah but so it's, it's
1: been quiet yeah yeah i mean i'm not too surprised though that these things are coming up every five years that's a long time and these are probably the five most impactful years i would think i mean you're the parcel expert but so much has changed for these folks and for UPS as an organization. So I don't, I, I guess we just get, I think the buzzword and the, the media input, right? Like, I'm sure they've been having these discussions since January, I would imagine.
0: Yeah. I, yeah. You know, probably even longer than that. Right. You just, and again, not to flip to the other side and, and be on the cynical side, but everything is just posturing for negotiation until okay. it's no longer posturing and then you have to execute one way or another. And and you never know how these things kind of wind up down the end, down the end of the path, or if it just gets cut off. And, you know, I actually get a little nervous, Sean, when you say the last time was a strike, it was 1997, because I, I just see it as, you know, uh, just a little bits of history repeating, right? Eventually, it's going to come back. It's going to happen. I do agree with you, Caitlin. It's probably this is it's been such a transformative time, especially in the in the small parcel industry. Right. It just it depends. You know, how much does UPS want to give back as they you know, there, there needs to be that balance. You need you need to run an organization, appease shareholders, but you also have to remember who's really out there driving the revenue, literally in this case, driving the revenue. So it's just it's a very precarious time. I don't want you know, I don't want to downplay it and say, hey, it's going to get done. I'd like to think because negotiations for the last However, many years, 26 have been smooth, that they can get to that place again.
1: I mean, 6% is a lot. Is there even room in these other networks?
2: No, no. I mean, that's, you know, that, that's going to, there's a big impact right there when we talk about like what happens if a strike does occur. You know, the one thing from the Teamsters side of things, it makes complete sense, right? I feel like the leader of the Teamsters, uh, Sean O'Brien, really is focusing on, t- Caitlin, to your point. You know it's been transformative over the last five years he's looking at the next five years right once they sign this agreement is that you know it's going to be the next five years that they're going to be locked into this and he wants to get what's best do the, what's best for for the union right so i, I completely can agree with that and ups ups is you know that they're really kind of on this path of like profitability they're they're you know part of the shareholders and everything and so the more that they give the teamsters they're looking at that margin erosion you know, they're, 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 it's, it's going to be a lot more expensive. The cost of business is a lot more expensive for them. I'm confident, though, that they will find a middle ground. And Brian, to your point, I think that a lot of this is just positioning. It's a lot of it, I think, is just getting, making people aware of, well, like, what are some of these terms that they're negotiating? What is it that they, you know, the Teamsters want? And I think ultimately, they will find a middle ground. But right. if they don't find a middle ground and they do strike what happens? Right. Right. So I will tell you right now for all the listeners of sipping and Shippin', their FedEx has already came out and said proactively said we cannot take the volume. Like straight out brands, straight out said so any brands who are trying to switch over to FedEx right now because of this potential like these UPS quote unquote UPS brands now wanting to try to negotiate with FedEx and, and shift over to FedEx, FedEx is not, um, has already stated they're not going to play ball. They can't do it. And for good reason, right? They need to protect the integrity of their network based off the volume that they already have with customers. They only have a limited number of open capacity. They need to reserve that for their customers, their existing customers as volume grows. Now you have, all of a sudden you have 20 million packages wanting to make the shift over to FedEx, it's going to completely slow down their network. It's going to disrupt the integrity of that network. It's going to make a lot of brands unhappy. They do not come out in a good light if they accept this and it ruins kind of the integrity of the network. You know, So I understand FedEx's position on this as well, uh, why they wouldn't want to do it. Um, We've seen it in the past where... You have this influx, you know, if we talk about the pandemic times, you know, all of a sudden they're expecting this much growth, this much capacity needs. And all of a sudden, boom, it spikes and then it brings the network down. They have packages on trucks just sitting around, you know, they, they can't get packages on trucks. They, they're just, everything just comes to a crawl and people are really unhappy. So they're looking to protect the integrity of the network, which means now a lot of brands are going to start shifting over to the U.S. Postal Service, right? Oh boy. The postal service is, you know, they are looking obviously for profitability as well, but they won't be able to take the capacity. They're not going to be able to take it, and you know, a spike of 20 million packages, you are going to see some bleed over into these, right? Just natural. um, Like a lot of our brands, who we've helped position to not be a single carrier, have a single carrier solution. So if they, you know, they're using FedEx and UPS you're going to see a natural transition of some of that additional volume going FedEx from UPS as we get closer to, you know, August 1st. But companies who are trying to make a massive, you know, what I call a panic shift um, mm-hmm. are gonna are really going to be uh, in trouble.
0: So I'm curious, right, because I've said this before, we've actually talked about this in, in previous episodes, you know, necessity being the mother of invention. If this were to come about and if there were a strike, Where do people turn? What are their options? Right. Because I know like certain networks are not set up for the heavier weight packages. Like we know, we know DHL, especially domestically, is more geared towards lighter packages. Their entire infrastructure is set up accordingly. I would imagine USPS is not that much different. So where do people go? Who's gonna be who's gonna be the one that steps in or several of them that step in to absorb some of that volume? Yeah, I mean, my my recommendation is for brands to start preparing messaging
2: to their customers, particularly if they're heavy UPS, um, you know, they, they ship a lot with UPS. Start me- preparing messaging to their customers on to expect no shipping or slow shipping, slower transits, and to make consumers aware of these negotiations. So it's not just like, oh... It's just happening to us. Start building the awareness. You know, UPS has a negotiations page website. And you know, start visiting that, prepare the messaging, letting your consumers know like there's this potential strike, and we're doing everything we can to, to shift this volume. The the fact of the matter is there is no one glove, one glove fits all solution. Right. Unfortunately. It's just too much volume. But at the same time, there are Opportunities to optimize um, with some of the other carriers. To your point, Brian, with certain package profiles, there are things that you know. So work with your your you know your customer experience team. Work with your you know your resident parcel expert. If you don't have one, you know uh, our customers can reach out to me and my team anytime. You know to discuss. We'll look at we'll pull data and we'll see what the options are. But yeah, unfortunately, this is going to be if a strike does happens, Things are just going to pretty much come to
0: a crawl. Yeah. Yeah. Yikes. And, yeah. Exactly right. I mean, <laughs> could you imagine? Uh, one of the things, I guess, Sean, and, and maybe we can kind of end on this, unless Caitlin has anything else, is uh, you know, I, from what I've what I've read is that if there's a package on a truck and they decide to strike on August 1st, that package will sit on that truck until that strike is over. So you could, in theory if there's been no settlement, you should really be considering, you know, where you're shipping, how far you're shipping, because you need that package to be delivered by August 1st. Is that fair? Yeah,
2: I mean, you know, 340,000 employees who decide, you know, we're done, we're we're going on strike. It doesn't matter where that package is, whether it's sitting on a truck, at a local sortation, at the main sortation center, everything's just gonna come to a stop. Everything's, you know, nothing's gonna move. They need the output, right? They need the delivery of those packages so they can fill in. And once everything stops, it just backs up.
0: <laughs> is there any risk that the unions from the other carriers will honor the strike? Um, so,
2: the unions from the other. So, so UPS is is really the when you when you look at the the carrier network, UPS is uh, very deep with the unions. FedEx has different arrangements. So the FedEx isn't really working with unions. They they have their independent contractors. Okay. Um network. So it's it's a little bit different situation for them.
0: Okay.
2: I don't know sense. which one, you know, which one is better, which one is more reliable uh, in terms of like long term. I think that uh, there are risks with both of those. Those are business decisions they make and they, they work within those realms. So where I'm going with this is not UPS is better because they work with the unions versus FedEx or FedEx is better because they work with independent contractors and not the unions. Just different positioning. Just different Understood. positioning.
0: Yep. Yeah. Caitlin, anything else you wanna you wanna run past our guru before we before we let him go?
1: No, I think it's just pretty scary to think about. I mean, it's one thing to be concerned about your, no, know, you know, your bathing suit top that's stuck on a truck, but this is impactful. You know, you think about medical supplies, pe- things that people need to run their businesses, and how it can screeching halt this. You know, we just talked about the supply chain. I think folks didn't even know what that meant pre-COVID, and now I feel like it's it was kind of getting to a good place, and now something like this can completely derail not just you know your packages but these are people this is 340,000 people who I'm sure don't want to sit at home and well I bet that they do they have they must have some type of contingency for them to be paid right i guess that's my question
2: my like understanding is they they get some sort of payment for picketing
1: uh, like a strike fund or right. something yeah okay
2: but you know I, again i think that Everybody understands the the economical impact, the business impact to UPS, the impact to, you know, 340,000 union members who are going to be essentially unemployed. I think everybody understands the impact. This is this is one of those situations. I'm very bullish on this this mindset. It's too big to fail. Right. Right. And so they they have to work through this. They have to figure out uh, the terms. UPS has the money, I believe, to meet the terms. I don't know all the details of, of everything that the, the unions are the teamsters are negotiating, but they have the ability to, to do that. The more important question is if and when a strike is over or doesn't occur and they come to, they finally do get to an agreement because if they do strike, they're eventually going to hit an agreement. When they hit that agreement, what that means is UPS has conceded at least somewhat, you know, some percentage uh, to meet the union demands. What does that mean to the rates? So as a brand, what does that mean going into peak season, right? Does that mean UPS is all of a sudden going to say like, oh, we have spent $400 million to put retrofit the trucks with air conditioning. And now we're going to spend another billion dollars in salary increases and improved work conditions for the Teamsters. They're not going to just willingly say, okay, we're just going to absorb all that. Right. So
1: the I'm, surcharge is going up by the minute. Build yeah. it in, build it in. <laughs> yeah.
2: And that's what concerns me. And the other thing that concerns me is when UPS, you know, when you have like you know, UPS and FedEx, they always tend to, you know, follow each other, follow the leader. Makes sense. And yeah. so if UPS does that, it's not like, okay, everybody's going to switch over to FedEx because FedEx is probably going to say, well, we're going to come up with some equivalent. You know, and, and so that's something that I'm, I'm trying to keep an eye on and see what's going on. I've already had conversations with both companies on what is this looking like? Because I know you guys are not going to absorb this. So what are you going to charge? How are you guys going to you know get this back uh, from the brands and letting them know it's or you're already pushing it too far? Yep. Right. Like the cost of where they are today, the year over year increases is too significant to e-com. You're going to bring e-com down. Is is the cost of business is too high. So, how much more are you going to hit that and?
0: And then again, necessity—necessity necessity is the mother of invention. What what comes out of this? Who continues to rise? What kind of peripheral carriers step up and fill voids and hit price points and find better, faster, cheaper ways to get it there? Because that's the reality of it. At, at some point in time, there will be new options. There will be yeah. new methods.
2: Yeah, another no, little secret is we're, you know, we're, we're also working on other solutions that, you know, kind of alleviate us of some of the
0: Jim's, these risks. Skim's always cross. got something, always got something up his sleeves. Something <laughs> up his sleeve. That's awesome. Sean, Kim, as always, a pleasure. Our first repeat guest. Uh, I couldn't have asked for a more insightful episode. Really appreciate it.
2: Awesome. Yeah, thank you guys very much. Great to be back. Thank yeah.
1: you, Sean, and thank you to our listeners. Make sure you tune in every other Friday at sippinandchippin.com or on your favorite podcast platform. Stay tuned on this, guys.
0: Now I'm sipping. Now I'm sipping sipping. boy. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you.
1: No strike.